Hello, and welcome to the Digital Mums podcast. Subscribe and tune in for topics important to us, to you and your career. We cover everything from the latest digital and social trends to the future of work, those important diversity and equality issues, and we also have a regular segment helping you with common challenges around working and raising a family. I'd like to welcome an inspirational learner and an inspirational learning provider to the podcast, Digital Mums, today. And that is Mary Story, and she is the founder, along with her husband, of the Rosie May Foundation, which is named after her daughter. Now, before we go to talk to Mary about the foundation, it's really important that you understand how the foundation and why the foundation was set up. So I'm going to have to ask Mary, which is just warning you in advance, an incredibly sad tragedy. Uh, But we have to cover it in order to put everything else into context. So I'm just going to ask Mary to just talk us through what happened. I think we can all safely agree that it's every parent's worst nightmare happened to your family in 2003, sadly. Can you just talk a little bit about that, which will then help to put all this in context? Yeah, so basically it was Christmas. We went to a Christmas party with our three children. So a Christmas party at House of a Friends where there were other families with other children and came back two days later as a family of four rather than a family of five as we left when we first set out to that party. So Rosie May was murdered by a boy that she knew, a 17-year-old boy that she knew who was son of a, a family who were friends of ours. And it happened without warning. There were probably 40, 30, 40 people at that party lots of teenagers and police said to us you know it it was a situation where it would have been difficult to lift somebody's wallet because there were just so many people around and we know every parent we knew every child it should have been the safest place in the world so this horrific thing happened and then the following year you thought let's go away let's let's all try and have some quality family time yeah, so we'd just been through the murder trial, which was in the October. And then we, you know, we had Christmas, obviously, facing us. And this happened actually on the 28th of December. So, you know, the idea of being here at Christmas was unbearable for us, particularly as Rosie May, you know, as most 10-year-old girls do, absolutely loved Christmas and everything about Christmas. It was just too painful. So we wanted to go somewhere where they didn't celebrate Christmas because we didn't want to go and see all those happy families, you know, doing Christmas when we, you know, when we couldn't anymore. So um, so we decided to go to Southeast Asia and we were standing on the shore of uh, an island in the Maldives, actually, waiting to get on a dive boat. So it was on Boxing Day. We were leaving the next day and we were waiting to get on a dive boat for it to go on our last dive and the dive boat started rocking really really violently and the uh the sea came in as kind of like a surge 
um, our diving instructor, you know, immediately said, oh, you know, this is not right. Never seen this before. They started getting people off the boat. And then a lot of the staff on the island, the cooks were Sri Lankan, and they started getting phone calls from family members saying, oh, there's been a tsunami. You know, there's been an earthquake in Indonesia. So we kind of knew what it was. I'd never heard of the word tsunami, I have to say. And I turned around to my son and said, what's the tsunami? And he said, mum, it's a giant wave. Wow, that must have been terrifying. How are you feeling at this point? We were actually really calm. So there was this huge panic, you know, obviously, and hysterical people and things. But we were actually really calm, which was a very, it was kind of really very surreal. And we bagged sand I can't believe we did it we we helped staff to bag sand to barricade everybody into the um kind of center of the island you know so we did that and then my husband was helping them put a, a pump in to drain the water out from the first wave and all this kind of stuff boys were bagging sand and then the second wave came and we it kind of just washed over the island really you know so kind of afterwards we well, the day before, actually, we planted a little palm tree in the centre of the island in memory of Rosie May. And so afterwards, we went back to see if we could find this palm tree because we thought, you know, there's no way it's going to be there. You know, I mean, it had broken the legs on the bungalows. It had pulled out the docking for the um, seaplane. And so we went on search for the palm tree and we found it and it was there. And it just stood absolutely perfectly untouched with debris swirling all around it. And we kind of felt at that moment that that was um, a sign that, you know, Rosie Mae had kept us safe as a family. That was our inspiration for setting up the charity, kind of helping, helping, you know, other children in, in crisis situations and giving them the future that obviously Rosie Mae had been denied. I mean, that's such an incredible story. Your resilience, resilience of spirit and strength as a family is, I mean, obviously it's very inspirational, but it's just quite astounding. Well, I mean, you've told me that story. I can't quite, I can't quite believe it. I mean, I talked, I think I talked to my mum on Sunday and she had to have a digital thermostat put in and she went into decline for about like four days. <laughs> and I imagine that moment where you saw that that palm tree was just still there. Absolutely, yeah. So I'd like to talk to you, Mary, about the Rosie May Foundation, and we're going to be delving a little bit more into how you were transforming the lives of women through learning. Uh, first of all, though, could you just let us know what the foundation is all about? So the charity. So basically, our mission is to give children a future by creating a living legacy, obviously, in memory of Rosie May. I know you do loads of work supporting children and supporting families in Southeast Asia, but I particularly want to talk to you about your Tuk Tuk project. So could you tell us and the listeners a little bit more about what that's all about? The Tuk Tuk programme is called Think Pink Sri Lanka, and it is a programme which trains single parent mums that are living on or below the poverty line to learn to drive. And then they rent from us a highly visible pink tuk-tuk, which they use as a taxi, run a taxi service from, for other women and children. So there's two outcomes of this project. The first is that it lifts the mum out of poverty and enables her to earn a robust income. So over all the other trainings that we do, this is the one that provides them with 
a higher income. It kind of trebles their income um, from what they were earning previously. And then secondly, the double whammy is that obviously it provides safe journeys for women and children, especially girls. In Sri Lanka, it's a completely male-dominated occupation. Well, indeed, driving per se, to be honest, is. But um, driving a taxi completely is. So we're breaking, obviously, gender barriers, cultural barriers as well. And um, it's very flexible if they've got a couple of hours, you know, they can log on and then can pick up clients' work through that method. So um, they have their own client list, which is mainly school runs. That's the niche market that they seem to have created and uh, after school classes. And we've had mums that have told us that because now they can put their daughters in tuk-tuks knowing that you know they're safe to get backwards and forwards to school, what it's done is it's released them to be able to work more hours, so to be more productive themselves as well, because previously they were chaperoning their daughters backwards and forwards. I mean, that's such an amazing idea because you're actually solving... Two social problems with yeah. one solution, which we're all about the digital yeah. ones. We love that. Yeah. The thing is in Sri Lanka, the thing about protecting girls and women is that that's research evidence-based. The UNFPA in Sri Lanka brought out a survey in 2016, which highlighted, which revealed that over 90% of women in Sri Lanka that have used public transport have been sexually harassed at any one time. That does, that does not surprise me because I've just read a book um, called Invisible Women about the gender okay. data gap, which okay. covers lots of yeah, lots yeah. of data all around the world of women getting yeah. harassed on public yeah. transport. Yeah, we've got a, a fleet of 10 tuk-tuks in the pilot programme at the moment. That's where we're at. Amazing. And so I'm assuming, mm. I don't know whether correctly or not, that they can't drive. They can't drive. So you, so, so you teach them to drive. Yep. So we fund their driver training. So we fund that. They part fund it themselves. There's always, there always has to be a contribution from, you know, the other side as well. And then we have sponsors or donors that donate the tuk-tuks to the charity. And then we rent them to the women. So they rent them off us at a um, very competitive market rate. The other reason for renting them as well is, is because we are then responsible for the maintenance the safety of the vehicles we have them insured fully comp whereas the women wouldn't be in a position to be able to outlay those expenses and then the money that is paid in rent we put back into the into the programs and so obviously so they have to learn to drive are there any other skills that they lack that you sort of teach them so we teach them business skills we teach them uh, how to manage budget finance when they learn to drive they also join a savings group so the savings group um, is of other tuk-tuk women you know they're all doing the same thing they all agree how much money they're going to save a month they have a collective account uh, bank account which is the first time they've ever had access to a bank account and they basically learn how to save for a rainy day and why it's important to have savings for a rainy day because previously to this They've always lived very hand-to-mouth. And then what they can do is if they need a loan, they can ask the group for a loan. And the, the group agrees to give them a loan out of that collective and they charge interest for that loan. Wow. Um, so it's not just a learning programme. You've also got, well, not just the driving skills programme. There are all these wraparound skills as well. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's also a microfinancing solution. I haven't finished yet. Then they learn English, then they learn English, conversational English, because obviously where we're located is on the south coast, so it's a tourist area. And then the other thing is obviously now we're partnered with PickMe, they get training on using smartphones, so digital uh, inclusion as well. So loads of training, loads of skills. I mean, all the, I'm just slightly <laughs> overwhelmed. So it's how... completely life-changing, clearly. Yeah. So life-changing, that's amazing. Yeah. That Tuk Tuk project, Mary, is just incredible so impressive and at the end of this podcast we're just going to chat a little bit about how you can donate to that project but finally I just want to cover your personal learning journey so obviously the women as part of the Tuk Tuk project have got their own incredible learning journeys but I know that you have not got a background in charities and I wanted to explore your personal growth story building this hugely successful charity now uh, could you just tell us a little bit more about the growth of the foundation and your journey? So uh, my husband and I set it up as co-founders. Then I ran it on a voluntary basis for 10 years from my kitchen table. And then decided during that time that actually, if I wanted this to be sustainable long-term le- legacy for Rosie May, then I needed to make the charity sustainable. And it took me kind of 10 years to realise that actually to find somebody else to do what I did for nothing would actually be quite difficult when I get to the stage where I can't do it anymore. So I'm like, all right, okay. So I decided to go back to university. So I went back to university, down with the kids, did a full-time three-year degree in um, global studies and linguistics while I continued to run the charity. Then I went on to do my MA in global citizenship, identities and human rights full-time for a year. So I did four years full-time because I felt that I needed to be able to walk the walk and talk the talk before I then decided to take a salary. So that was what I did. So I started taking a salary five years ago. So it had grown kind of quite organically up until that stage and then going to university opened a lot of doors for the charity in what in sorry if you don't mind me interrupting that Mary yeah. in what in what way did that open the doors um, well I think my professor that that mentored me she made the analogy of me going to university as kind of like my coming out because previously to that I had run the charity on my own with kind of family and friends and volunteers, but I had run it in a very safe way. The outreach that we had, you know, the flame of that candle, all the people were very close to that flame that were our supporters. So I wasn't actually putting myself out there. I was keeping myself protected by those kind of people. I was able to do it because obviously they knew the story, you know, they knew what had happened. I wasn't going to be asked those questions that people ask you when they don't know you. So I think that was part of my way of obviously building my resilience, I guess. And so when, of course, I took myself out of that environment and went to university where I knew not a soul, A, I became anonymous. So previously I had no anonymity obviously it was high profile in the media my environment and my where I lived you know everybody knew who I was 
So it gave me the anonymity, which I think then gave me the kind of the courage to then be able to go out there to an audience of people that I didn't know that I'd never met before. So my professor made the analogy of coming out, which I think was actually really, when I think about it, kind of quite true, really, that I'd come out of the closet. (laughs) I was expecting to talk to you, I think, about the learning side of Rosie May Foundation and talking, you know, the economic empowerment of women. But also what I'm hearing is an amazing personal learning story for you. Yeah, self-journey, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. A, I'd never, you know, I didn't know how to run a charity, didn't know anything about charities. There's all that side of it. And then, you know, obviously, yeah, the whole personal growth, that side of things as well. So, yeah, so so that happened. So when, when I mean open doors, it gave me access, you know, to a wider kind of audience, I guess. From there, we continued to grow. And two and a half years ago, we decided, decided you know, when your kitchen table the dining room table is like you can't have a meal off it anymore because it's just <laughs> I was like this is really I can very cool. much relate to that we and need so, to move so out we'll I need to move out I need to move out <laughs> so um so we had um an office for the first time and employees started employing staff so um we've had a very experienced a very rapid rate of growth I would say over the last three years um it's been a Uh, really accelerated growth and I think that is because having the office has raised our profile having employed people has generated more income for the charity and given it a wider outreach Um, so we now have a team of five people two full-time three part-time and a whole team of volunteers and with interns and we have raised over one and a half million since we started but to put that in perspective just last year our turnover was a quarter of a million wow so it's it's, clearly it's growing and I just want to add at this point that you have got a couple of digital mums social media marketing graduates yeah helping you now on the social side which is amazing so that's a lovely story to hear that you know, our graduates are giving back in this way. Yes. And I can quite understand why they have chosen the Rosie May Foundation yeah. and also why they have chosen you. Because if I if I wasn't already working 80 hours a week, I, I somehow would manage to, because you're so yeah, inspirational. Come on, Catherine, like, you can squeeze it in a few hours, surely. Come on. I've got to find some time from somewhere. And I have to say, when my work wife listens to this, she, she's deaf, she's going to be the same. Um, I think that's all we've got time for, Mary. I could just keep talking to you all night. Because... <laughs> You are such an inspirational learner on a personal level. The fact that, you know, your journey and the fact that you are changing the lives of all of these families and that you have turned such a personal tragedy for you and your family into such such an incredibly positive story. You're such an inspiration to me. I mean, I, I can see why I'm almost offering to be a mentor for you, even though you clearly <laughs> you probably do more than oh, I can. Oh, I'm looking for a new one. <laughs> That'd be great. Um, thank you so much for talking to me today. How do you take take donations, Mary? If people um, listening like yeah. me that might think I'd love to give money to that project, sounds yeah. really amazing. Um, so you can go on the website and there's a big donation button. <laughs> Of course, which takes you directly to just giving. Or if you, you know, have a business or a company and you want to donate a tuk-tuk and have your logo on the back of the tuk-tuk, then you can contact us again through the website. And we've had tuk-tuks that have been donated personally. So we've had one from, so our very first one was from a 
supporter from Australia. And she said to me, I usually give my children diamonds for Christmas, but I've decided this year I'm going to buy them a tuk-tuk. So she bought a tuk-tuk. She had a photograph of said tuk-tuk with, um, you know, it had sponsored by the whatever family on the back of it. She had the photograph with the mum driver. And then she made the photograph into a Christmas card to give to her children on Christmas Day. And I said, do take a photograph of their, um, you know, response to the Christmas card for me, won't you? And she sent me a photograph of them holding this card. And they were just absolutely beaming. And she said, you know what? She said they were absolutely overwhelmed with it. And that was the first tuk-tuk that was ever, was ever bought for us. Oh, what a lovely story. I wish yeah. I had money to buy a tuk-tuk. So I think what we're saying to you everyone is that... Probably don't buy your children diamonds, do you, ordinarily? I, well, I don't, I don't have children. I have a dog. He's definitely not getting diamonds. Yeah. I can tell you that much. Just buy him a diamond-studded collar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he'd, look, yeah. he'd look very yeah. handsome. So individuals, you can donate directly through the donate button. But then if, yeah. you, if there are brands out there or people that feel that they want to contribute more, yeah. tuk-tuks, Just get think about that. your children for Christmas. They need, they don't need more diamonds, <laughs> rich people that are listening to this. Then you can donate in other ways as well. Amazing. Yeah. If you enjoyed listening to the Digital Moms podcast, why not leave us a review? And to keep up with all the latest episodes, subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss out.